I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about reinventing the workplace and features Aidan McCullen, leadership consultant and former Irish rugby international, and Nadia Jacksonbayeva, CEO of Chief Reinvention Officer and author of The Titanic Syndrome. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Nadia, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Hi, guys. And we've got Aiden on the line as well. How are you, mate? I'm very well. Delighted to be here and delighted to meet with you, Nadia, as well. My pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be a, a fascinating one, and uh, I'm looking forward to to hearing you two uh, deliver some gold for us. But let, let's start with you, Nadia, because you've just released a book that uh, I love. I love the idea behind, and I think it's a really good catalyst for us to to start there in terms of this idea around you know designing the future workplace and reinventing ourselves and our companies. And uh, so I'd love it if you could tell us about the book and uh, the Titanic syndrome and what it is and how it's affecting the, the companies that we work for. Oh, thank you. So absolutely, this is a, an accidental story as most of things in my life at least have been complete miracles and serendipity of sorts. So I was an academic many years ago and I started business helping companies survive all kind of turbulences in the marketplace. And some years ago, I noticed that something very similar exists between all of our clients who are in serious distress. So we were trying to find language that will help us explain to ourselves, to the companies and to the world at large, what is going on inside companies when they are not able to face change and disruption in a very healthy way. And uh, just by accident, we uh, noticed that the story of Titanic, the perhaps one of the most known disasters in the world, exhibits so many very similar um, attributes um, between the teams of the companies in distress and the team of the Titanic. So we wanted to understand better what was going on. And that's how the concept of Titanic syndrome showed up. So Titanic syndrome is a, a mindset problem. It's a corporate disease whereby companies and sometimes communities, governments, even individuals bring about their own downfall uh, because of arrogance, because of attachment to the past, especially past success, and because of pure inability or uh, refusal to see the new and emerging reality. That's the story of Titanic syndrome as a concept. And of course, the book is the vehicle to help bring this concept to the world. Yeah. And again, I think it's so poignant right now and, and a great moment in time to be looking at this sort of stuff. And Aidan, I'll, I'll flick it over to you. Uh, your background is professional rugby. Uh, you played for a long time and are now in leadership development and, and innovation. Uh, I'd be really interested in your experience with the companies that you're going into and consulting from the leadership perspective on this whole idea around Titanic syndrome and, and the arrogance and attachment to the past that, that still exists, even though every day we're bombarded with you know articles on LinkedIn and um, you know in Harvard Business Review and all the content is about this need to, to change, but there's still this, this holding on to this idea. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely fascinated with this idea of transformation, both personally, which leads to actual business transformation as well. And Nadia's work is fascinating, the chief reinvention officer, Titanic syndrome, etc. We see it everywhere. And the personal transformation part is really important because I see it as you cannot change business models until you change mental models. So therefore, people become really attached to what they have, and then they go to protect what they have because they don't know another way. And even when you come in as a consultant to try and show them, you need them to experience it. And it's until it, it, most of us in life don't actually change until we have some type of crisis or we see it as a crisis that forces, forces us to change. And you see this every year 
Nadia, I'm sure you see this as well, where you go in and you consult to a business, you show them a clear future, you, you map the path, you come up with a vision statement, a mission statement, et cetera, for the company, and it fails. And something like 75% of transformation programs fail. And it's the same for people in New Year's resolutions. Most of those New Year's <laughs> resolutions fail. And it's, it's the same thing for me. You can't change what the business does until you change how the people within the business think. And it's very, very difficult to show them the way until they actually experience some crisis of sorts. And you see this, for example, in my background, which was media. I was in digital media at the turn or the, the, the growth of digital media, where you're trying to show the business that, the, that there was a cliff coming, there was an iceberg coming, to keep it with the Titanic metaphor, that there was a tit- there's an there's a iceberg coming and mm-hmm. that we need to adapt well before we crash into it. Yes, most businesses didn't react until well afterwards. And in fact, they did huge damage to their future digital business models by bundling it for free, for, by giving it away just to protect the business as it was yesterday. I just wanted to ask, somebody asked me, I, I want to ask both of you, actually, somebody asked me a couple of days ago, I was talking with a, a company in Europe who um, is trying to activate this new mindset in their employees. And they're asking me what are the biggest factors or what are the drivers that help people reimagine themselves and reframe and transform their own mindset. And they were asking me, is it cultural? Uh, This was a very conservative country where things stayed the same for years and years and years. And in terms of survival of the country, this was crucial for the survival of the country for centuries to be in a kind of defensive mode because it's a small country and it was taken over by many other nations. And the only way they saved the language and the culture was to be very conservative. And now there's an effort to make way for new ideas and there's a resistance. So I didn't have an easy answer. We went into many directions, but I wonder where you're thinking on that. What are the drivers? How can we activate people or help them change the mindset better? I might jump in, Nadia, because what I what I see is the, co- the co- company or a country or even a mindset only changes when the leaders change, which is, you know, is, is a cliche at this stage. But what I mean by that is when people feel they have the psychological safety to change and that the way the way they're um, paid, the way they're incentivized, the way their position is rewarded changes in, a, in adapt uh, to adapt to the new state status quo, they that, then only then do they change because if they feel that they change and they're going to be the only one that changes and everybody kind of takes a step back, then they're the outlier and the outlier mm-hmm. always gets fired or always gets heat where they shouldn't. And this is why so many change makers and organizations leave because they are suddenly ostracized or they suddenly get their power taken away or their ideas just are stillborn. And because of that, mm-hmm. it fails. And And like, for example, a government I love is Estonia, and Estonia had no choice but to go to become a digital society. And it didn't take mm-hmm. long, but they en masse jumped and said, "We're going to do this. We're going to become this e-government. We're going to become, uh, we're going to roll out e-governance across the country." And therefore, every business adapted towards that. And only then did they see change en masse because they know they have no other choice. And when people have choices they will always stay with the status quo because it's comfortable and our brains are, are, are formed that way because change is actually painful for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would loop into that as well. And you mentioned some of the things that I would have talked about in my answer to the question as well in that I think it's about the framework around it. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I had mentioned, you know, when you're talking about the behaviors that certain incentives drive in the workplace until the incentive goes away or is changed, you know, salespeople are always going to slash and burn to achieve that incentive. And, and so that's a framework thing. And then even within the teams, I would argue that, yeah, the, the way that we can drive it a little bit more is 
democratization of leadership. So going from having followers to we're all kind of leaders and that drives an accountability system around. So as we are all changing, we're becoming accountable to each other. So if we're on a team of 20 software developers, I would argue it's more effective for us all to be one twentieth of a leader rather than us all reporting into one person and, and only feeling like we're letting that one person down if we make a mistake. Um, you know, I've seen that work in, in sports dressing rooms where the, the culture is about not letting the other 20 people on the team down. And that can drive kind of that behavioral change where you're always trying to get better because, you know, you want to be part of the, uh, you know, the, the tribe as, you know, Seth Godin and Simon Sinek talk about. You, you want to be included in a tribe. And like Aidan mentioned, we're going to get better together rather than one of us doing it and, uh, you know, no one else jumping off the cliff with us. It's fascinating for me because I'm trying to figure out how to help both individuals and communities to see that we have no choice. So the Estonia example and the sports team example for me is powerful because to a degree we are refusing to accept the reality that the speed of change is simply different. Uh, it was okay not to change um, even 20 years ago. Yeah. The end of this 20th century, it was okay. You could survive even if you're a second, third, fourth follower. It's no longer the case. Even if you are the mighty titan of business today, two, three years, if you don't change your business model, you will be out no matter how golden is your castle and how comfortable you are right now with your market share. So the question is, how do we awaken to the fact that this is it, that we, we all are Estonia, no matter how big or small we are, we do not have a choice. Either we change or we'll be swollen by the sea of change. Well, Aidan, how do, how do we shock our systems? How do we get to the point, and a lot of people are doing this already, but other than this tragedy, which acts as a catalyst for change, how do we shock our systems so that we're getting that same effect? and, and searching for change personally before we, you know, get cancer or before we have someone pass away close to us and, and have that real dramatic incident, uh, you know, on a personal level, how can we find that so that we can do the personal thing, then, you know, reinvent the companies that we're working for as well? Yeah, well, I think that's a really key one, Cody, because people often point to the company and say, you know what, the company has no purpose or no vision. Therefore, I'm going to leave the company. But you need to start with a personal one first, because really, when you're going looking for a company, you're looking for a company that matches your personal values, your per personal vision or mission. And I know that to a lot of people, it sounds risky and it sounds like, oh, that's that's airy fairy thinking or it's wishful thinking. But you can do it. But it, it involves bravery and it involves support from your spouse or your partner, etc., to find that because you're going to move. Because oftentimes you get sold to pop and you're told the company is a certain way and you get in there and you're kind of going, oh no, I, this didn't work out the way I thought it would. <laughs> and, you, and you need to have the bravery to go again. That, that's one thing to say. Then the second thing is, it's like any habit, and, and you'll know this from sports, now you, you'll know this from your work, that every change involves changing one thing from yesterday. And the moment you go to change one thing that you did yesterday or you did habitually, until today, it's going to be painful because we are habit-forming creatures where our brains are built around habits and therefore any change upsets the status quo, the brain's homeostasis. And, and we're constantly going, wanting to get back to the way things were because our brains are made to conserve energy. And when we go and introduce new ideas or new concepts or new habits, straight away the brain's going, hey, don't waste that energy. I need that to keep this body alive. And I think that's, that's one thing. There's, there's a biological element to recognize. And when you do that, then you start looking at your personal habits and you need to be aware of those habits. And this goes for both a person and then the person within the company that a company needs to understand its habits and it needs to get new information. I mean, everything, every change starts with new information. And when you have new information, you can make new choices and those choices then are difficult, but once you have the information, you know what choices you have. And what I see many companies do is not look at the information out there. They look for best in class examples in their own industry when they need to look 
for best in class principles in the world. So they need to understand what principles of other companies in, in, in other fields, far different fields that they could look to, to show them a future for themselves. And one of the great examples I love, and it, it links into Nadia's work on Titanic syndrome, is that I had a great guest on the innovation show before, Dr. Tony Caffrey, McCaffrey, and he talked about the Titanic crashing into an iceberg. And he's saying, what's an iceberg? An iceberg is a floating mass. And, the, and if you thought about differently about the iceberg, you could think, actually, we could offload people onto there long enough for boats to get to save them. And it's this idea of functional fixedness that we can only see mm. something for the use that it's intended for. For example, a chair to a child can be a castle, it can be a cave, it can be a multitude of things. But the world forms our minds in a way that a chair becomes a chair and that's all it's used for. We may hang a coat in the back of it, but that's about it. But if you think about your business that way and you start expanding all the uses of all the tools you have, then you start looking for problems for your solutions, not looking for a market for your product. And it's a very, very different mindset. And I think introducing those mindsets to a business or people within a business starts changing little by little how they think, and therefore they get vastly different results. I'm with you completely on the principles versus best practices. And since we are digging into the story of Titanic, and I, I love the idea of using the iceberg uh, for a different purpose yeah. to give you a bit more detail on the story. So um, best practices is something we adore and admire in business. Uh, the whole business school industry started with the idea of best practices with Harvard Business creating the idea of cases as a main tool for teaching and business cases since then became this huge phenomenon in the world for the last hundred years. The story of Titanic shows what changed though, how this is no longer really um, the best way to go. So the person who was at the wheel, I guess that's not the right, correct nautical term, but the person who was at the wheel of the ship at the moment of the crash was not the captain because it was already midnight and the captain was asleep, but it was the first officer of the ship and he was 39-year-old Officer Murdoch and he had huge experience in the past. He was very well known in the industry and one thing he was known for, he was written up about, he was a kind of a legend, is avoiding collisions. He had many experiences in the past where he would avoid collisions with other ships or other objects with only inches in between his ship and whatever was on its way. And on the day, on the night of the Titanic disaster, he actually did exactly what he did before. So he used his own past best practice, <laughs> his own past success to prevent things. But because it was a completely different circumstance, uh, many scientists today say that if he did nothing, if he just let the ship go straight on, uh, it would be damaged, but it would not cut through the side of the ship the way it did, and so it would survive. So the idea of best practice worked very well in a stable environment. But in a world where we have such a volatility and such a speed of change, your own best practice, let alone best practice of another company, could be your own downfall, could be the thing that kills you. So I'm completely with you with the idea of the principles, but the issue I'm facing is that very few people are comfortable with applying principles. They want precise steps and using principles makes them very uncomfortable because it requires additional mental, physical, whatever other agility and work. <laughs> it requires more work. How are you dealing with that? I, I've been struggling quite a bit with the idea that so many want precise answers, clear steps, how-to instructions, and principles feel just too soft for them and too uncertain. So how do we help people become more comfortable with that approach? Well, what I've seen, Nadia, for, for my work with as a consultant is firstly many consultants will go with the uh, IBM nobody gets fired for buying IBM so they'll go with the top four because it's safe and consultancy can sometimes be like an insurance 
process where it's like, well, the consultant said we did it and it didn't work, so it's not our fault and we keep our jobs right. Mm. And because of that, Mm -hmm. there's no real buy-in. And oftentimes, I don't know what your ideal customer is like, but what I find is often the change maker or the person crying out for change within a company is not the CEO. And it's some change maker or maverick within the company who knows there's a better way, who's gained some type of mass appeal or has somebody's ear where they can afford to bring in a change consultant. And oftentimes they get massively discouraged when the program is written or the program is co-developed or co-authored with them like you would do. And And then afterwards, the company does nothing with it. It's put in a drawer, never to be seen again they get discouraged mm-hmm. and they leave the company and they go somewhere else and probably the process happens again. What, what I've seen, the change that happened for us when, when we worked with companies always comes when the CEO or is often of a family-owned business who has buy-in for the family. So the family may know there's an iceberg coming and they need to change and they need to change well before the iceberg is even in sight. And it's because there's that deep care for the future of the company. And, and this is a problem we see all the time with massive companies that they are all, the CEO is often a custodian of a role, not, not a leader. And it's not often their fault because, and, and it was something I was going to raise with both of you guys is without board support for full transformation or full change within a company, it's not going to go very far because the CEO will always get pulled back to working on in the business and not on the business. And once they are doing that, they get pulled into monthly reports, quarterly reports, financial uh, reports, etc. And they get judged on that. They don't get judged on a future that they cannot see. And there's a great quote that I love that you, we all should be judged on planting seeds of, of whose trees we will never, ever see. So, so these future... Uh, formulations of companies when we start planting the seeds for them today oftentimes the success won't happen until two or three ceos away from us and companies don't have that support and they have families to think about they have their own corporate incentives to think about their bonuses to think about and they can't afford to make those changes and unless they have board support or family support of if a family is still interested or owns the business they don't get very far. Yeah, I would agree as well. And I've been writing and thinking about this idea for a long time. And you know, from a sporting perspective, the thing that I always come back to is was a quote that was in Where Others Won't actually, is there's no such thing as a great coach, only a great coach for that team. And when you start to think about that idea, it's about that customizable journey and the fact that you know, if we are internally facing and we're you know tending our own garden rather than looking outwards all the time which I think is is one of the key issues here is that we are always looking outwards at what the other best practices are when the reality is the only way we can do that is actually implementing them by being internal facing if that makes sense um, yeah I think we're constantly looking outwards and this idea of customizing our own company's journey frightens us because, yeah, we would be going alone. But I think that's where the world is heading. If you look at, you know, the products we're producing, it's all about individualizing journeys for consumers. And that, to a certain extent, needs to be replicated in the, in the workplace where it doesn't matter if everyone else is doing it. It only matters if we're doing it and we're doing it well. Um, so I guess that would be my response to, to your, uh, uh, your query there, Nadia. I appreciate it. It's, it's a question mark for me also at the personal level. I think our, our century, 21st century, will be the time where we'll, we either find an internal drive, kind of the internal source of ownership, or we will see continuous and massive collapse of everything we're involved in. And in that sense, I appreciate the issue of long-term relationship to the history of the company and the future of the company of a family business. And I also think unless every single one of us develops the mindset of ownership, whether we own something or not, 
understanding that for this moment, I am in church and I'm stepping up and this is my game. I don't think we will be able to make it because the complexities we're facing, whether we talk about the global market and the signs of the next recession are just on our hands right now. This is December 2018. It's very visible that the, uh, the, the, the new era of recession is just upon us. Whether we're talking about monetary system that is very, uh, very shaky right now in terms of the future of what money is. Um, both crypto money and real money, whatever we call real money, uh, when we are <laughs> facing every kind of political, ecological, social, every kind of unrest in every part of the world, unless every single one of us develops understanding that we own whatever situation we're entangled organizationally, professionally, socially, in terms of our community, I don't think we'll make very far. And this is the shift we have to make in this century. I think there was a shift we made in 18th, 19th century when we realized that the, the feudal system is no longer serves us. I think we got to some level of freedom and self-reliance in the 19th, 20th century, but I think it's a time for something even more radical than that. Yeah, and can we actually achieve that without digging into our fears and vulnerabilities. I think that's a, a key piece that's missing from this whole conversation is on an individual level and then on a collective level, um, you know, there is some power to acknowledging those fears and then even airing them uh, so that we can create solutions to this problem, again, both on an individual level and a collective level with people that want to help solve that problem. But I feel like if we don't you know, find out what our fears are, then we can't truly answer the question in the first place. I think that's a really good one, Cody, because I think many companies know their fears. Like most people know their fears. Fear is actually the reason that stops many people, whether it's fear of losing status with a new change in a business model or it's fear of losing friends when I change how I do things in my life or, or your friends holding you back, for example, as well, because they don't want you to change. That, that fear is actually the killer of most change. But bringing it back to a, a business, I think businesses know what's wrong. And I'll give you an example, a company I worked with, we staged this um, experiential uh, experience for them where they came into the office, we had staged a funeral. So they came in and there was a coffin, there was a priest and there was two altar boys standing in a dark room. And the CEO and his uh, 11 disciples, let's call them that, came in and they walked in. They're like, what the heck's going on here? And they walked up to the coffin and they looked inside the coffin and it was their brand. The brand was <laughs> with a big logo in there with their brand sitting in there. And around the room was these blackboards and they had to write on. We asked them, we said, firstly, condolences. You've killed your brand. <laughs> now tell us what, what, how you did it, how, what happened. And they filled the blackboards around the room. Then what we asked, what we had planned was the altar boys and the priest left the room. We left them there uh, to dwell on their loss. Um, and meanwhile, the priest and the altar boys changed into waiter costumes and they were equipped then with champagne. And we had a different room that was all bright, bright and airy. And we asked them to come out into that room and we said, congratulations, you guys saved your brand. What did you do to save it? And let's bear in mind that they actually had a chief transformation officer and the chief innovation officer there. And they could, they came up with very, very few ideas as to how to save the brand. And this is where I go back to what I mentioned earlier on. Information is so important. And oftentimes mm -hmm. they look at information of direct competitors in their own industry. And you will very rarely find new information in there because people have pulled it apart to pieces. And there's a, there's a quote by Heraclitus that no man ever walks into the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same man. And the, the reason I bring up that quote is because they know they need to change, but they forget the environment on the outside has totally changed as well. The customer has changed. The desires of the customer has changed. So they need to adapt to a brand new ecosystem. So therefore they can't go and work on a, a slightly 
incrementally changed business model because the, their environment has totally changed and they need to have a radically different change. So therefore, the information they have is totally out of date or else it's inward looking, inward facing, like you say, Cody. And if it's inward facing, they will not have new insights because the information needs to be radically different. To get that information, they do, you do need consultants. And I, I when I worked in media, was very anti-consultant because I thought I knew it all and I, I don't mind mentioning <laughs> that. Because when, when, you're so, when you're so involved in your own industry, you have the scar tissue of that industry and that's massively valuable. But oftentimes you don't know other information that's out there. And this is where the co-creation of a consultant and an industry professional and, 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 and a consultant who has scar tissue as well of real world experience is even stronger. But when you bring them together, you can come up with new insights because the consultant can look elsewhere out into the environment, into the ecosystem and spot trends that are very, very useful for that business. An example being recently Corona invested, the, the, the company that owns Corona, the alcohol brand, as you know, Cody, from being in Canada, invested $4 billion in the cannabis market because for them, what alcohol does is bring people together in a convivial experience. The same thing with cannabis or CBD or whatever that mm-hmm. may be brings people together in an in 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 experience. And it's the same mental model, but it's a totally mm-hmm. different industry. It's seen that way. And when you, when you actually start seeing things, going back to what we mentioned about the Titanic and running into the, the iceberg and seeing the iceberg as actual a floating mass that I can offload people onto, you start thinking differently. And I think that's the role of a change consultant is to get people to see their assets differently, see their ecosystem differently, and see how they will operate in that ecosystem massively differently. And they often are asked, um, you know, we don't have resources for consultants, so what are we doing? And you don't have to. It's very important to bring outside help. If you have resources, get an amazing team from outside. If you don't, at least few options that are completely free from you. You have a different question, difficult questions that your team is wrestling with. Ask somebody from another department who's never heard of that problem to sit on your meeting. Just their simple questions will immediately guide you into more essential conversation. Um, step further, call somebody, one of your friends in a completely different industry. Sometimes I bring biologists, physicists, artists musicians to business meetings because they have such a different point of view and because they have a clean slate. If you want to go even step further, I guarantee there's a college or university right in your vicinity where there's a class where students might brainstorm with you for uh, one session because this is a practical experience for them. I mean, there are tons of free ways to bring this outside perspective that Aidan is speaking about. And all you need to do is just a step further and you will immediately see a different angle to the question you're asking. If your question is right, you will find a different answer. It's getting the question in the right order and looking at it from a different point of view um, that will help you uh, get a new answer. I would throw a complete smoke bomb on that as well and, and add in you know something that I wrote about and a lot of people want to talk to me about is even within your industry. And it's funny because, you know, as I've been looking at a lot of more content recently, you realize that comedians all hang out together. And even though they are actually competing with each other, they help each other. And I wrote about this idea around uh, soccer managers actually referring each other to other teams that would ultimately become rivals. And I would argue that even within our competitive sets in the business world, there's going to be someone at a competitor that you could actually talk to about a problem without giving away your IP and without giving away, you know, your company secrets that could also give you some ideas about how to solve a problem. And I think that's another thing is ultimately we're competing with ourselves rather than, uh, you know, the outsiders. And, and that I would stand by that statement, including within, you know, the big four banks or the big five consulting firms or whatever they are. Ultimately, they're competing with themselves. And so there are, like you said, Nadia, there are a million options to, to change the perspective a little bit that can help you find a solve. Yeah, and I love what you said, Nadia, because questions are 
the the big thing to start with because you've got to ask different questions and to ask different questions you need to be have different information to inform those questions and i think it's shameful that you know if you look at the research on children children are discouraged throughout school to ask questions and education is formed about having the answers not having good questions and if we changed education we would start changing the future because we we teach children how to think about thinking we teach them how to critically think we teach them how to ask better questions and we start the change there in society so you talk a lot about sustainability etc and business for good and and the circular economy this is where you change you change the children of tomorrow because they, they're the business leaders of tomorrow and we need to start change education which is a huge part of it and i thought you know when you think about business change often what happens is there's a huge lack of psychological safety and speaking of titanic crashes i i am reminded of in outliers malcolm gladwell talks about the disaster of the crash in guam where he talked about this idea of cockpit culture where the plane crashed and a plane crashed in i think it was 1997 korean air flight crashed and 225 of the 254 people on board died in the crash and when they looked at the black box recording what they found was the co-pilot knew the plane was going to crash but in the culture of the of korean uh, air flight they did not have the authority to question the captain and i think it's a really strong metaphor for what happens in businesses that oftentimes people in in inferior positions and i'm doing air quotes here within the business are fearful to bring new information to the, the the bosses or to the leaders of the business because they will be shot down and this is where i go right back to becoming the outlier in a business can actually be a very dangerous place to be if you don't have the psychological safety or the true support of leadership to ask different questions or come forward with new suggestions and not have those suggestions just given a, a nod to and they don't go anywhere because that's more disheartening than anything else. Absolutely. I'm with you on the education and the starting early and Super happy to share one story. Um, we do a lot of pro bono work each year, and this year it's my own college, the college that gave me pretty much everything in life. I, I came to U.S. on a scholarship, and my school kept me on more scholarships and pushed me above and beyond. And so this year I decided that I will make it my mission to support this college. And this year they decided that it's time to make reinvention and resilience required curriculum. So in August, we did our first experiment where every single incoming freshman has a reinvention 101 course. And the idea that you need to build your resilience and reinvention muscles, the idea of transformation, constant upgrade, being a normal skill, just the way reading and writing was 100 years ago, a big breakthrough where most of the world didn't know how to read and write, and now we do. I think it's time to think what are the fundamental survival skills of this century. And my big statement, my big belief is that uh, resilience and reinvention should be on that list. So I'm happy to see first schools taking the courageous step and saying, it's time to change something in our education system. Something has to go and something has to start, something new. And I think that goes back to changing people, Cody, like you mentioned. So it needs to start with the individual. Nadia said you need to be accountable, but you need to have the courage to understand that that's okay. And I think many leaders who know change needs to happen are also afraid themselves because they don't have a supportive board who will let them invest millions because it takes a lot of investment to go and change a business's direction so to think about the titanic again to change the course of that and go a totally different route will cost a lot will cost a lot of mm-hmm. resources there would be sunk costs as well so the business as it was will need to be funded to keep to keep funds coming in to fund the new model as well and and nadia talks about s-curve jumps as do i often in my blog you need to start the new model way before it's needed. And often the best companies will have several new models, working on several new models in in, in uh, synchronicity to the current mm-hmm. model. And, and five of those 10 models might fail. Nine out of the 10 might fail. They may all fail, but it's better than letting the entire 
ship crash into a, into another iceberg. Definitely. And so how far ahead are these new companies going to get though? I think that's the thing that baffles me at the moment is, you know, we've talked about being an outlier and I've written a book called Where Others Won't, which was about, you know, looking for a competitive advantage where others won't go and won't look and, and or are deliberately ignoring. I think about this regularly, the, the companies that can come together, whether they're brand new or existing and manage to reinvent themselves, that will show vulnerability, you know, right from the start when they're bringing employees in, um, even to the point of potentially talking about their fears and vulnerabilities in a company blog. And I just see that being a groundswell that is going to allow those companies to jump significantly within the marketplace. And whether that's grow, whether that's just that, um, you know, uh, customers gravitate towards them. I see that as being a new way that you can exponentially jump up that S curve in the future. And so I think the companies and, and the people that are going to do that now, uh, it's ripe for the picking and, and they're going to jump ahead. I think the the, the environment has changed so radically and it's changing even quicker and it feels like change is happening quicker than ever before because it actually is. And when change is happening so fast, it's like, I love the metaphor of the lion tamer and the chair. The reason, this is a great story, the reason a lion gets uh, frozen by somebody holding up on a chair is not the whip. Everybody thinks the lion tamer holding the whip and the sound of the whip is actually scaring the lion it's actually the chair. What, what happens is they hold up the leg, the chair and the lion tries to focus on all four legs of the chair at the same time and becomes dazed and confused and then therefore stops. And I often see that as a great metaphor for what's happening in business at the moment. You're holding up the leg of a chair or you're holding up a chair. One leg is blockchain. The other one is digitization. The other one is people transformation. And the other one is financial downturn. And all of a sudden, people are going, oh, what, what do I do? I can't. And then the, therefore, they do nothing. They freeze in their fear. And when they freeze in their fear, they do nothing. And then the business is, is headed for an iceberg. And I think by actually breaking down that chair one leg at a time and understanding which is relevant to me in which order is a very powerful thing to do. And because everything moves so quickly, uh, there's a great quote by Joy Ito, who's MIT Media Lab, and he says, when everything is moving quickly except us, the consequence is a social, cultural, and economic whiplash. And that's what we're seeing. Because we're see this, is, this goes way beyond business. This goes personal, and it goes cultural, and it goes economic. That, that the world is moving fast. And, and we're seeing huge levels of anxiety in the world as well. We're seeing college students coming out of college not knowing what to study because they're, they're thinking to themselves, are those jobs going to be there in the future? Are they going to be replaced by artificial intelligence? I don't know where to go. So what they do is just do what their parents tell them, or they do what their friends are doing, or they do back to best principles. They do what's expected of them, and they don't have the bravery to go and seek out new gold or new opportunities in the workplace or develop new ones. And it's this fear that's paralyzing everything in our society. To pick up on both of your points on the speed of change, we do research every year on the speed of change because we are not satisfied with what's available in the field. And we closed our study in November um, and published it in the first copy of the, the first edition of the Titanic Syndrome. And here's the statistic. We ask people how often do you need to reinvent uh, your organization to survive today? And more than 2,000 participants 13.7% to survive, we need to reinvent every year or less. And 33.6% is every two to three years or less. That means about nearly 50% of all companies today are reinventing every two to three years or less to be able to stay afloat. And if you are not upping your game, if you're not building a system, starting with yourself, and then your whole organization able to sh shift around and kind of turn your ship that quickly, you will be out. And if you do, you will be that competitive, um, you, you will have that competitive edge that Cody was speaking about. So it's not just a feeling that the speed is accelerating. It is, if you look at the statistics, it's there in terms of 
how often do we see companies declaring bankruptcies or being acquired? How many career changes do we see in new employees and in youngsters? So it's here. It's already here. Unless you build your system in a world that change is just the norm, you will not be able to compete and you will not be able to survive, whether it's personal or it's organizational or it's communal at the level of the whole government. And another thing that I learned from you as well, Nadia, when I, I came to do a guest little spot at, at one of your sessions was that we've talked about this already, but people are looking for instructions. But uh, you were saying that, you know, the way science is structured and, and research is done is that they can't actually get the reports out and process the information quick enough to impact the change in that. So everything is lagging behind. Mm. And so, yeah, to, you know, put a, uh, an exclamation mark on what we've been talking about. There are no guidebooks for this stuff anymore because we can't study it quick enough to impact the change, which is um, you know, another thing. We keep going back looking for these set of instructions and, and they're just not there and they won't be there. I'd add, Cody, that you know, we talked about look towards best principles, not best practices, but also have a five-year direction, not a five-year plan, because the plan cannot mm-hmm. be feasible. It, the environment is changing too rapidly. So have a five-year direction, have a fuzzy direction where you want to head to, and then break it down yearly and evolve it yearly. And, and that acceptance that it's going to evolve yearly has to be accepted at board level, at leadership level, at middle management level, and every level within the company. And therefore, it doesn't look like you're being haphazard and changing the plan every year. You're just saying, this is where we're generally headed with the information we have and the questions we've asked, this is where we think the future is. It may change. And this is what our plan is for the next year. And I think it's that, it's that subtle change that is needed where people then accept that it's okay, that it's, this is going to change and nobody's going to get fired over, oh, well, you said that was the strategy and it's changed and you cost us millions in consultancy fees. You don't. You say, this is the general direction we're headed here and it's going to change. And it's a totally different mindset. And as Nadia said then, it frees people up and it liberates them a little bit to think differently and also transform on a regular basis. And this isn't new stuff either. This, you know, history is packed full of stories and particularly Western history of, of these pioneers and these people that, you know, put a backpack on and, and just said, I'm walking that direction. And so this sort of stuff has existed before where we, we were walking into not knowing and yeah, I guess we're kind of revisiting that on, on massive scale now, but um, it's, yeah, it's fascinating to see where it's going to go. I'm going to ask you both this. I'll start with you, Aiden. All of this stuff considered, what, how are you disrupting yourself personally? Like what uh, are you going through at the moment to you know, try to increase your performance and become more self-aware and, and do all these things that we've been talking about, you know, on a day-to-day basis? Like what are some of the, the things that you're engaged in? Well, I, I, have, I have two new young kids, Cody, and um, they're nine and five. And I really try to walk the talk with what, they tell them, what I tell them. And I tell them that, you know, that mistakes are purely learning experiences and that every day you should make a mistake because if you, if you haven't, you're not pushing yourself far enough. And I don't want them to be extreme athletes or anything like that. It's nothing to do with that. It's just to get them to understand that if they don't try things, they won't make mistakes. And wisdom comes from the lessons you learn from your mistakes, not making the same mistake time and time again. And I have adapted that into my life. And I try to push myself to do something different every day. Um, You know, I love this saying, it's Janet Fitch uh, quote, which is the Phoenix must first burn to emerge. And I try and do something every day to to burn up the phoenix that I am and and <laughs> bring the best bits of what what I was yesterday to today and add something different you know and i and I have good I've, i I look at my habits from the outside I try to get outside myself and think about how I'm thinking, I think about how I'm acting, I think about how I can be better as a as a husband as a as a father as a colleague um and to myself as well, and I think you know with, with with business, a lot of us get tied up so much in providing for our families or whatever it may be or or making money or you know buying things and I think if we if we 
change our mindset to a little bit to go, okay, how can I, how can I care for myself a little bit better as well? Because I think this is a big thing in the world. We, we put ourselves last. And if we actually not selfishly start thinking about ourselves, our health, our, you know, our mindsets, how we interact as a human as well, I think it's a big thing. And often it feels soft and fluffy to people when you say that. But I think if, if everybody makes a little change for the better and starts treating a fellow human a little bit better, the whole world lifts. And if we do that, then business lifts and then mindsets lift and you have a happier humanity because we're, we are, as Nadia's work has shown, we are in a time of unbelievably rapid change and we actually don't know what's coming. We have general mm-hmm. ideas of what's coming, but we need to be extremely adaptable. We need to be constant phoenixes, constantly changing and, and actually have the mindset that it's okay to change and that's accepted and, and in fact, it's encouraged. Wonderful. What about you, Nadia? How are you disrupting yourself? Very beautiful answer, Eden. And um, I'll, I'll give a few examples um, in terms of pragmatics of it. So to piggyback on the idea of taking care of yourself first and understand that unless your cup is full, it cannot, you know, unless you put your own, um, you know, air mask in the plane <laughs> you cannot help the passenger <laughs> next to you um i'm cooking more and taking time i have a one daughter she's almost 15 and taking time with her to understand the nature of creating a good meal and where the food comes from has been a really magical experience uh, in terms of the team i started partnering more with younger teams so i have one uh, partner, um, the the group that is designing our book, The Titanic Syndrome, because it's very visually uh, intense. It has uh, canvases and exercises and hand-drawn pictures and so on. And this is a, a company that is about 30 employees started by four founders. Three of them are 25, and it's a five-year-old company. So they started it at 1920. And the fact that they're constantly grounding me in the most beautiful way make sure that I don't develop my own case of Titanic syndrome and don't grow too arrogant and don't hold on to my past as much as I want to. The way they gently and sometimes very intensely make fun of my past choices in the most beautiful, irreverent way, um, I appreciate it very much. So being more with younger different type of generations has been very helpful in terms of the kind of pushing yourself in business we've made a commitment to uh, develop a new product or a new feature of a product once a quarter and even the book um, that we started this conversation with is a living book so the way we publish it is uh, we publish a new version uh, about every two to three months with the new tools that we develop in partnership with our clients in the two to three months beforehand. And the reason we did that is because we realized exactly what Cody said, that a typical book takes anywhere between two and five years to publish, and it's based on research that is done another two to three to five years beforehand. So in a world where we need to reinvent every three years, having a book with a wisdom that is five, six, seven years old is simply not acceptable. So we decided that we will disrupt our own product and create a, a flow in which we force ourselves to put a new thing about every quarter. And it's been challenging and super exciting simultaneously, very uncomfortable, <laughs> very uncomfortable at the personal and organizational level at the same time, very rewarding. Absolutely. And it's a fantastic idea as well. Uh, I love the whole you know, weaved in naturally to the reinvention thing is, well, why don't we reinvent books as well? <laughs> yeah. We're trying to do a little bit of that with this podcast. And and my answer to my own question is actually this podcast. I, I fought it for a long time. It's interviewing is something that's a little bit uncomfortable for me, but I just decided to, to go for it and, and take a leap. And, you know, most people kind of start with interviewing their friends or their mum or whatever. And I just went straight to Adam Grant and just went straight to the top and said, uh, I'm going to start here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, set the bar high, man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. It, there's uh there's there's really something I, I love this idea that we've we've clued onto about it being personal change that then ripples onto everything else, whether that's our marriages, whether that's um, the companies that we work for. I think it really starts internally, and and I, I love that we've ended up there. And there's things that we can do in our everyday lives, whether it's you know looking at your calendar and developing better habits, or whether it's meditation or, uh, you know, uh, going to someone and asking uh, for help improving the way that we talk to others or, or whatever it is. I really like that idea. And I, I think it's so powerful for the knock-on effect that we can have as individuals, because ultimately what we keep forgetting is that companies are just a collective of people. That's it, man. Agreed. Absolutely. I think that's where it starts and that's where it ends. That's funny, isn't it? It's, it, it can sound so complicated, but uh, it's so easy. Um, this has been awesome, guys. Let's do plugs. So we'll start with you, Aiden. Where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you? All the different things that you're doing and producing. Um, yeah, plug yourself. Okay, man. Well, people can uh, find me on The Innovation Show, which is available on all anywhere you can find podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, etc. And on the website, theinnovationshow.io. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Aidan McCullen, A-I-D-A-N-M-C-C-U-L-L-E-N. And I have a weekly blog, The Thursday Thought, every Thursday on Medium. And that will share a lot of the thoughts we've talked about today. And uh, I have a book on the way, which is another way I'm reinventing myself, uh, which is about reinvention and personal transformation. And that will be out as soon as possible. And, you know, Cody, you've been a massive help as one of my accountability partners reading, uh, accepting chapters every week to keep me on my toes. So that's greatly, greatly appreciated. No, not a problem. And can't recommend your show highly enough. Um, just the, the vast array of guests that you have on and, and uh, you know, again, challenging yourself to interview people from all sorts of walks of life. It's, it's fantastic. And obviously after people listen to this, I think they should flick over and subscribe to your show as well. And Nadia, we've been talking about your book, but where can people find you and follow along with all the things that you're doing? Well, the easiest way is our homepage, chiefreinventionofficer.com. I truly believe that every single one of us in this day and age should take this title, whether you have a job title or not, put it on your personal real or virtual business card that you are chief reinvention officer of your life and you have the permission to be a new and better version of yourself and you don't need to wait until your company or anybody else gives you that title. So chiefreinventionofficer.com, this is a place where you can find our book, where you can find any other resources. We try to produce some videos and all of it can be found through that website, but of course also on YouTube, LinkedIn. I have a crazy last name, so don't worry about spelling my last name and trying to find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Stop by our webpage and you will find all our social media connections. <laughs> Just while we've got you, why don't you tell us how to pronounce your last name? Because then it'll make sense to people <laughs> once they see it. Yes. Yeah, so my last name is Jeksimbaeva. It's not my full name. I come from Kazakhstan and in my history, um, the last names and the full names represent your tribe, your region, your social status, your gender, your birth date, so many different things coded into it. And people ask me why I don't give up this name because it's uh, very cumbersome. It's very long too. Uh, the reason is that I come from a family of uh, repressed and prosecuted uh, community, I guess, from a prosecuted camp, family of Soviet Union. Uh, we were enemies of the state. We had almost every member of the family executed or tortured or imprisoned. So I felt like I have responsibility to my ancestors to carry the name for which they died. So it's a very difficult last name and I'm sticking to it. And so you should. Bravo. That's lovely. And I've heard that story before, but it always gives me chills as well. Um, all right, guys, uh, this has been magic. I'm, I'm glad we all got together. Uh, I, I was hoping this conversation was going to go like this, and it, it certainly did. So thank you very much for your time, and I'm sure people will be reaching out to you after hearing it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks.
Thank you both so much. Wonderful, wonderful to connect. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave a five-star rating. But if you're going to go somewhere, I'd rather you go and check out Athletic Greens. If you follow me on social media, you'll see me doing two things, exercising and traveling. At my last checkup, my doctor told me I had the lowest cholesterol she'd ever seen, but I was crucially low in a whole range of vitamins and minerals that I'd never heard of. And as a result, my hair was in terrible shape. I went looking for the best all-in-one solution I could find, and I landed on Athletic Greens. I found it an easy habit to get on board with. A simple routine of one scoop in some cold water every morning before I have breakfast, and I have all my bases covered. And now, my hair is back to normal. And if you still don't believe me, I'm an Australian promoting a product created by a New Zealander, so you know I'm not joking around. I can't stress this enough. Jump over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody and claim your special offer today. Five free travel packs with your first purchase. athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.